Thank you for listening to CG Life with Steve Kortz. It's my hope that today's message will help you find and live the extraordinary life Jesus gives. After listening to this podcast, I'd like to invite you to connect with me on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram for more updates and resources. So in this series, we've been looking at what genuine love is, the kind of love that's capable of sticking and staying, of overcoming whatever might be overcoming us personally. In short, we've been exploring genuine love as the only love that truly wins. And we've said that God himself is the standard, the final standard for that kind of love. And everything that goes by the name of love that we experience ultimately has to be measured by him and by his character. It is by his character and his actions that we know what this love that wins actually looks like and actually is like. We've been exploring the question uh, since last Sunday, what can we expect from love? And it makes sense to go on and then explore what can we expect from God's love as a consequence because if it's genuine love, it will be like His love. Now, there's something more that we want to explore. We saw last week that God's love is marked by an unexpected generosity and a willingness to work to the end of our good. But there's something more that we want to explore, something that is essential for us to understand if we're going to understand what genuine love is and what genuine love looks like. Now, I want to say to you, this is important for any number of reasons. On a practical level, this is important because I don't really know how well I'm loving the people in my life if I don't have a good measure for what love is. If I'm loving them genuinely or if I'm loving them in a superficial way, I don't really know unless I have a standard. If God is my standard and his love is my standard, his character is my standard, then I'm going to have a good sense of whether and how much I am genuinely loving the people in my life. And the same is true of you. At the same time, we, we also have a standard by which we can know whether we're being loved by others in ways that are genuine. Now, these are important. They're practical applications from what we're looking at. But the most important uh, element of today's message is this. We've got to know what God's love is like and what we can expect from it so that we're able to stay strong in those seasons of life, particularly when he seems to be absent, particularly when he doesn't seem to be active, particularly when it seems as if all of life and, and uh, God himself is somehow against us. If we don't understand how God's love works, and if we're not clear on what we can expect from his love over time, those seasons, if we're followers of Jesus, those seasons will end up defeating us or derailing us. So it becomes very important to know the answer to this question, what can I expect from genuine love, or better, what can I expect from the love of God. I want you to take your Bibles this morning and turn with me to Ruth chapter 2. We're going to be looking together at verses 17 through 23, and that is page 223 in the worship Bibles you received as you came into the Sherwood Forest campus. We want to say good morning and hello to the folks at Sherwood Forest. 
If you came into the Clements campus, you'll find that Bible is located underneath the seat in front of you or under you if you're seated on a front row. Ruth chapter 1. We're going to be looking at verses 17 through 23. Again, that's page 223 in the worship Bibles provided for you. Now, in this second chapter of Ruth, the author gives us uh, the second act in the ancient story of God and his work in the life of the widowed Naomi and the widowed Ruth. You may recall that Naomi and her daughter-in-law, Ruth, uh, having both suffered the loss of their husbands in the land of Moab, having lost their protection, having lost the provision that husbands provided in that ancient time, have come back to Ruth's homeland and have come back to her hometown of Bethlehem, having left Moab destitute and with no other options, no other uh, opportunities, Ruth decides, since it's harvest time, that she will go behind the reapers and the harvesters working in the fields and see what she can collect, knowing that the Old Testament law under which the Israelites lived required the owners of the field to provide that option to the poor. And it just so happens that as she goes out that day, she lands in a field that is owned by a man who is described as worthy and godly, a man by the name of Boaz, who it just so happens is related to her former father-in-law, who is one who is charged with uh, caring for those in the family who are poor. They did not know he was nearby. He did not uh, exist as far as they were concerned. And um, he gives to her a great deal of very special attention. The scripture says, the story goes, that as Ruth began to glean, he, he takes notice of her. He allows her to uh, not only glean, but to glean extra. He tells his workers to provide her with extra. In, or, in, in other words, we said to do a really sloppy job so she could pick up more. Uh, he provides her with a meal and actually serves her. And then he invites her back into the fields again. He does so much for her that when she comes back, she is loaded down with barley, much to Naomi's surprise. What we said last week, though, is that Boaz, because he is a godly man, because his faith is in Yahweh, is one who represents to Ruth and Naomi God himself. He is living as a man of faith. He's reflecting the character and the nature of God himself. So Boaz is presented to us in this story as the instrument by which God works to display his love to Ruth and Naomi. Naomi, you'll remember, the woman who decided God was against her and God had abandoned her. God is working through Boaz to show these women, Ruth and her new faith in the God of Israel, Naomi and her broken faith in the God of Israel, to show them both his persistent and his purposeful love for them. Today, our passage begins as Ruth returns from her first day of gleaming. And so we pick up the story in verse 17 of Ruth chapter 2. The scripture says, so she, Ruth, gleaned in the field until evening, then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. And she took it up and went into the city, and her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned, and she also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied from the lunch that uh, Boaz provided. 
And her mother-in-law said to her, where did you glean today? And where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, the man, his name with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, may he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, the man is a close relative of ours, Ruth, one of our redeemers, one of our family members who is charged with helping take care of us when we cannot take care of, her, of ourselves. And Ruth the Moabite said, besides, he said to me, you shall keep close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it's good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. There you're protected. There you're provided for. This is a great plan. So verse 23 says, she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and the wheat harvest, and she lived with her mother-in-law. Today I want to speak to you, I want to talk with you specifically about the heart of God behind the love of God the heart of God behind the love of God. You don't have to live very long before you discover that there are all kinds, all versions of love out there, and that those versions of love are supported by a kind of mixed bag of motives. Some say that they love us, and, but their motive is control. Some say they love us, but their motive is manipulation. Others say they love us, their motive is lust. Behind every kind of love, there is a certain kind of heart. Now, that's not news to you. Uh, we all know that intuitively. Uh, the love that people show over time reflects the heart that they have over time. By heart, of course, we don't mean the organ that's pumping and running our cardiovascular system. What we mean is the very core of a person, uh, the very center of their being, of their personality, uh, where their feelings, where their thoughts come from, where their desires and hopes, their ambitions, their intentions are all located. That's where our passions are found. It's in the heart. When you're angry, you can feel it in your heart. Your, your heart kind of roils. When you're jealous, you feel it in your heart. When you're thrilled, you feel it in your heart. It's uh, in this central place. When your heart is, as we say, broken, you feel it right here. And that is why there are times when we really lean in, when someone says to us, uh, I want to share with you my heart. We lean in because what they're saying is, I'm going to open up and tell you what I really think, what I really feel, what I really intend, what I really want, what I really desire. I want to show you my heart. By the way, men, that's what your wife wants more than anything. And uh, all the women said, kind of they want it, kind of. <laughs> maybe not, maybe not. I, uh, okay. I know my wife does. She would say absolutely amen, but she's in the next service. All right. I want to share my heart. Uh, we are drawn to that. We're drawn to that. Now, because we're made in the image of God, we are not identical to God by any stretch of the imagination, but because we share the image of God and we have the capacity to love, it is also true that if you want to know the heart of God, all you need to do is watch the character and the actions of God, particularly in His Word, and you begin to get a sense of what He's really like at the very core of His being. 
He is the standard by which we should measure everything we call love. And because of that, and because we'll all, most of us will admit that we need his love, it becomes really important for us to ask this question. And that question is, what is the heart of God really like? Now, I want to tell you why this is so critical. Uh, I believe it was A.W. Tozer who said, what you believe about God is the most important thing about you. What you believe about God is the most important thing about, about you. And I think he's right. I think that's right. I think if you have a skewed view of God uh, and a skewed view of his heart, uh, then it's going to impact the way you live. It's going to impact the way you relate to God uh, and how you live your life. But I think also second, the second most important thing about you and about me uh, after what we believe about God is this. It is what we believe God sees when God sees us, how he looks at us, I believe is the second most important thing, how he views us. How do you see God viewing you? When you think about God taking notice of you, what immediately comes into your mind? Um, what would you imagine to be his visage, his face? What does that look like? I believe that's the second most important thing. The heart of God helps us to, understanding the heart of God, helps us to know what we should believe about him and what we can expect from him in terms of his love and attention to us. What is the heart of God like? Now, in our text for today, the weekend, uh, this weekend, the story of Ruth and the story of Naomi and Boaz actually gives us insight into the heart of God by showing us three things. It shows us, first of all, what God's heart always does, and then it shows us what God's heart never does, and finally, it shows us what God's heart desires most, what God's heart always does, what God's heart never does, and what God's heart desires most. If we understand these things, we're going to understand God and his love better. These things will change the way we live and will change the way we engage life when life is great and when life is not so great. Let's look at each of these together, shall we? First of all, Look with me at uh, what God's heart always does. We see that in verses 17, 18, and 19. The scripture says, again, there, that uh, Ruth gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley, huge amount. And she took it up and went into the city, and her mother-in-law saw what she gleaned, and she also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied, and her mother-in-law wants to know everything, who and what and when and where and how and why. She is so excited to see what Ruth has brought to her. Now, I want you to see with me that uh, Ruth's return with uh, this huge loan of grain uh, makes it clear to Naomi that finally everything that had been going wrong is now going right. It had been failure after 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 failure, defeat after defeat after defeat after defeat, and suddenly, suddenly, out of the blue, when she thought things could never get better, they suddenly get better. They suddenly get better. She can't believe it. I mean, this is the picture I want you to have in your mind. Ruth is coming home. 
what, what uh, Naomi was watching for when she saw Ruth was at, at, at most a little bag, about maybe a quarter pound of grain. Just a little bag. When she sees Ruth coming home with an ephah, a 50-pound bag. I should have gotten a 50-pound bag of something and picked it up and put it on my shoulder. You should have, what it must have looked like. 50 pounds of barley. It's like Naomi was going, what? I mean, even those who worked in the field, as we said last week, if they worked in the field, at most they'd get one to two pounds from having worked all day long as an employee. If you were gleaning in the fields, maybe you'd get a quarter of a pound just picking up stuff they dropped. She's coming back with a 50-pound bag. I mean, incredible, incredible. And uh, on top of that, did you notice this? On top of that, she brings home supper already made. What a daughter-in-law. Now, if I didn't preach gospel-centered messages, I'd say, be like Ruth. Be like <laughs> Yeah, no, but... Yeah, I mean, it's amazing because it's challenge after challenge after challenge and disappointment after disappointment after disappointment. And Naomi is bitter and she's angry, disappointment upon disappointment. And then all of a sudden it's a 50-pound bag of barley and supper thrown in already fixed. Absolutely astounding. Absolutely astounding. She can't get over it. So Naomi's wanting to know all those things that, you know, nosy mother-in-laws want to know. And uh, this one, I, I can give her a pass, can't you, on this one, because this is so amazing. And she comes to some conclusions. And I want you to notice the conclusion she comes to. She says, notice this, verse 19. She asks all these questions, and then she says, blessed be the man who took notice of you. Who took notice of you. That's an important phrase. The phrase in the ancient text means essentially that Boaz saw her and he saw her in a certain way. He sees her in a particular way. He first of all takes notice of her. He takes notice of her situation. Secondly, it means that he finds some value in her, that his, he noticed her, he sees value in her, and thirdly, that he met her need, her need right at the point of where she was. She met her at the point of her need. So this noticing her speaks to the capacity to see persistently beyond oneself to someone else. It's a matter of finding value in another person and then being moved to help them where they need help. And it is from Boaz's engagement with Ruth that we get our first glimpse into the heart of God. Because what is happening here is Boaz is in this story, as we know, having read this story, uh, Boaz is God's instrument by which he is displaying his love to these two women, particularly to Naomi, who feels like his love has abandoned them. And what God is showing, first of all, through Boaz and in his response to Ruth and to Naomi is what God's heart always does. And what God's heart always does is this. God's heart keeps a close, keeps an active watch over his people. He watches them like he watches a treasure and his heart is always moved to meet the needs that he sees. 
He always watches over his people. He always sees them as something of value. He finds value in them. And then he's moved, his heart is always moved to meet the needs that he sees and always in ways that he knows are best. This is why the psalmist will say things like, um, keep me as the apple of your eye. The psalmist is realizing that it is God's heart love that he needs. When you keep someone as the apple of your eye, can you, can you get that picture? Can you get that picture? It's a, something that you treasure, something that you watch. My daughter Bethany was on spring break, and she went with a friend down to Florida, her roommate down to Florida. Her roommate uh, is a private pilot, and he flew them down. I made a terrible discovery this week, and the terrible discovery is that my iPhone, Find, my, find Your Friends, doesn't work on airplanes. <laughs> so there she is in this airport in Fredericksburg, Virginia, and then all of a sudden, there she's not. And I'm going, ooh, I'm praying. I mean, I, I'm, I'm lifting her up like never before because, you know, she's one of three apples of my eye, right? Or four. Yeah, four. Four. Well, I've got, I've got, uh, I've got grandkids. I've got grandkids. So for seven apples. I got a whole tree full. I got all kinds of apples. My eye's everywhere. It's everywhere. Okay. So, yeah, I'm praying, I'm praying, I'm praying, and then finally, 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 she reappears in Tampa, Florida, and I'm so thankful. I'm so thankful. Any parents ever have that experience? You don't know where they are. It's driving you crazy. And then you find out, yeah, yeah. You say, well, my child's three. That hasn't happened yet. That hasn't happened yet. It's going to. It's coming. Keep me as the apple of your eye. Uh, don't, don't let your heart shift on me, the psalmist says. And what's beautiful here in this story from Ruth is that what we're seeing is that God's heart doesn't shift. The heart of God is always considerate. He pays close attention to his people. He takes notice of where they are. He takes notice of what's happening to them. He treasures them, and he's moved to meet them at the point of their need, their greatest need, in ways that he knows best. He meets, and this is so important, and I don't want you to miss this, he meets the needs they know, and he meets the needs they don't know. But he has always moved in his heart to meet the needs of his people. And he is working to meet those needs they know and they don't know, even when they can see him and when they can't. And this is part of the thrust of this story. Naomi was convinced God had abandoned her. God shows up through Boaz to say, you don't really understand my heart. I know. I see, I care, and I'm moved. And because of these things, you can count on it, I act. 
So Boaz's response to Ruth is a powerful lesson for us. Here is an imperfect human reflection of the heart of God. He watches us and he shows us that God watches us as if we are his great treasure. He meets us again and again right where we are. He's moved to do for us again and again what we really need in the greatest way possible. His heart. Ultimately, what the story tells us is for us. When you can't see his heart, you've got to trust. You can't see his hands, you've got to trust his heart. And his heart is never against you. His heart is always for you, always for you, watching over you, always working for your good. If you don't know that, when the hard times come, as a follower of Jesus, you will think your faith has failed because your God has failed. Trust my heart. I see, I know, I care, I'm moved. And I'm moving. Second, I want you to notice with me what the story shows us in terms of what God's heart never does. And it's located in verse 20. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, may he, that's Boaz, be blessed by the Lord, the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, the man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And so with this additional information on who it was that noticed and helped Ruth, Naomi blesses Boaz a second time now that she knows his name. But then she tells us what she really sees. And this is phenomenal. What she really sees is the kindness, the hesed, the kindness of the Lord. The reality that his kindness has not done what she thought it had done. It hadn't failed. God had not become an enemy. He hadn't forsaken her. He hadn't forsaken her family living or dead. Uh, he had been faithful to Elimelech. He had been faithful to her sons by being faithful to their uh, wife and, and, and uh, daughter-in-law. This word for forsake is, is critical. It means to let loose. It means to be let go or to be abandoned. And quite frankly, that is exactly what Naomi felt when she lost her husband and she lost her sons. It's what she expresses at the end of chapter 1. She is angry. She is bitter. She's hostile toward God because she believes, this is what she says, he has assaulted me. He's come against me like an army. He was kind, and I know he's capable of being kind, but now for some reason, I don't know why, but he's come against me. And the God who was my friend is now the God who is my enemy. But in this moment, seeing Blessing, 50 pounds of barley. After blessing, a ready meal. After blessing, Boaz, a kinsman, a rescuer. Blessing after blessing after blessing. 
she has a breakthrough moment. And what we find is that her understanding of God and her understanding of his kindness has shifted. It has shifted. And Moab, the death of her husband and her son said, you cannot count on God. She'd come to assume somehow in her life that God's love and kindness were, were conditional. And, and, and she had come to assume that it depended on her performance and her perfection. And she hadn't been perfect and she hadn't performed well. So God backed off from her. She had assumed that God's love was always visible in constant protection and provision. And if protection and provision ever stopped, then God had stopped loving her. So she'd come to the conclusion God is unreliable. You never knew when he was going to go from being a friend to being an enemy. And now he was her enemy. But now it's obvious he's not attacking her. He's not punishing her. With God's entry into, his life, into their lives through Boaz, altering their situation and their circumstance, she sees God's up to something. She sees this loving kindness at work, a loving kindness that's been at work behind the scenes, showing up in her life. Now, this is what I find astounding and I think so instructive here. Naomi finds, this is important, don't miss this. Naomi finds that God's loving kindness has been and is at work on her behalf, even though she knows, he knows, that she's been bitterly complaining about him. He failed me. And she's actually said it out loud to other people in her uh, life group. You know, the old life group back at Bethlehem. All the ladies got there and said, could this be you? You look so much older. You know, they're very kind in life groups. Uh, no. In our life groups, they're very kind. So don't be afraid to try one. They're very, very nice, aren't they? Yes, yes, yes. Okay, good. Let's keep going. But this, this Naomi had been bitter. She'd been angry. She'd been hostile toward God. And in and, and all of that, she is crossing, complaining, bitter, harsh. And God's still working. And what God is saying to her is, look, you've you got to understand I'm not asking you to perform for me. I'm not asking for you to be perfect. What I am asking for you to recognize is that I love you deeply. And my heart toward you is the heart of a friend. I am for you. It's not the heart of an enemy. I'm not against you. Even when you can't see what I'm about, I'm always for you. So you doubt me. You question me. You're bitter toward me. Doesn't change me. And it doesn't change, and this is critical, how I feel toward you. Now let that sink in just for a minute. How hard do you find it to be 
when somebody's bitter and angry and hostile toward you for you to continue to be kind to them. From Boaz's unexpected experience, here we are. From his lavish help given to these two women, we get a second great insight into the heart of God. And we get an insight into what God never does. God never gives up. He never abandons his people. Even when they give up on him, he does not abandon his people. Even when it seems as if situations and circumstances would say that God is against us and not for us, he never abandons his people. His children, another way to put it is his children are to God simply unforgettable. They never, never get lost from his radar of care. As Paul says to Timothy, even though we're faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot and he will not abandon his children ever. And it does not matter. When you are his, you are his. See, the great problem with this false idea that you can lose your salvation is it calls into question the loving kindness, the hesed of God, and says that God's love is human, just like ours, on again, off again, dependent upon what we do. My friends, it never is. Jesus said, you are always safe. You are safe in my hand, and I am safe in my Father's hand. No one can ever snatch you away from me. I am loyal to the very end. I do not change. You got to trust my heart. when you can't see my hand. It's coming. It'll show up. It's never been a moment when I lost sight of you. Never been a moment when I didn't know what you were going through. Never been a moment when I didn't care. Well, you've got a funny way of showing it, God. You know, well, you're asking me to be a God who loves like human beings do. I'm always, always aiming for something else for you. Oh, by the way, what is that? Well, let's look at what God's heart desires most, shall we? Look at verses 21 to 23. The Scripture says, God says through His Word, records the the rest of this story in this chapter, And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead, He will never abandon his people. Naomi said to her, the man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And then I love this. All of a sudden, do you see that word, besides? And Ruth the Moabite said, besides. He said to me, you shall keep close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. I love this. Do you see what happened? Here is Naomi. She's going, this is amazing. Look what I've discovered about God. He doesn't fail his people. And on top of this, this this man is one of our near redeemers. And she's just going on. And right in the middle of her sentence, Ruth jumps in and she goes, besides. 
Now, in, in Hebrew, the word besides could be translated into our uh, vernacular as, but wait, there's more. Like those Jinsu knives, you know, you get 19 for 3.95, and but wait, there's more. Yeah, yeah. I don't want to know if you ever bought those. Uh, but, 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 but Ruth says, but wait. She interrupts her. She goes, but wait, there's more. Yeah, there's grain. Yes, there's grain. And there's a meal. Yes, there's a meal. And he's a kinsman redeemer. That's great. But wait, yes, there's more. What is the more? She says, he told me, you can keep close by my young men until they've finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it's good, my daughter, it's good that you go out with these young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. He's offering you more protection, more provision, even on top of what he's already done. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and the wheat harvest. I, I don't know if you're reading this with me, but it's just blessing. Okay, okay, stay with me all the way through the barley harvest and then stay on with the wheat harvest. It's blessing after blessing after blessing after blessing after blessing. And Naomi and Ruth are getting a great view of the heart of God. I love that word, behold, because really what Ruth is saying is, listen, 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 I, I'm not done yet. There's more to my unbelievable story. If this wasn't enough, all this wasn't enough, Boaz has said, come on, keep coming back. Through every harvest we've got, I want you to keep coming back. Barley harvest, wheat harvest, I want you to keep coming back. I'll keep feeding you. We'll keep sending supper home for Naomi. You just keep coming back. Now, I want you to notice with me what has happened now. Naomi and Ruth have received the protection and the provision they lost when they lost their husbands. It came through Boaz, but it came from the Lord. God made himself their husband. And I want to say to every widow in this room, here is a great promise from God. God makes himself the husband of widows. He says, here is my protection. Here is my provision. Watch how I make protection and make provision for you. But here we're shown what God's heart desires most. And what God's heart desires most is to be generous to his children. That's why he invites them, like Boaz invites Ruth to stay close. To, to stay close means to cling to him, to pursue him. God invites us to join him in this life and stay near him through all of it, the highs and the lows. He wants us to lean into him. He wants us to lean on him. Why? Well, because he wants his children to take hope and experience the results of his generous promises. His promises, like Boaz's promise to Ruth, are always, always, always essentially promises of good and of much more to come. God has, and he still says today in Christ, what Ruth said to Naomi, but wait, there's more. It's the heart of God. Back in the garden when Adam and Eve blew it, and God cast them out of the garden, they thought that was it and that it was over. They had a perfect life in a perfect place. They blew it, and now they had an imperfect life in an imperfect place. And God's heart showed up. 
And he said to the serpent within their hearing, there's coming one serpent who's going to crush your head. You will bruise his heel, but he will win. What was God saying? God was saying, behold, but wait, there's more. When the world became so wicked that God decided that he would start fresh with just Noah and his family and Noah building this ark and getting into that ark, surely thought he was in a mess, thinking if this God could bring this kind of judgment, what hope is there for us? And at the end of his time, do you remember? God put it in the sky with a rainbow. And what did he say with that rainbow? He said, behold, you just wait. There's more. In the time of the judges, when Ruth was living and Naomi was living, when the culture was falling apart and every tub was sitting on its own bottom, everybody was doing what was right in their own eyes, when culture seemed to be sideways and upside down, God said to his people, listen, I know things are bad, but I have a king. You just wait. There's more. David showed up on the scene. He was an amazing king. He conquered all kinds of peoples and kingdoms and brought the nation to a new level, and then he failed. And God said to his people, it's okay. Behold, I have a still better king yet to come. You just wait. There's more. And those Old Testament prophets, when the people were in exile and they really did believe God had abandoned them and could not reach them anymore, those prophets were honest with the people and said, you're here because of your sin. You're here because of your rebellion. You have failed God. But their message didn't stop there. Their message included God's behold. And they said, oh, 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 but wait. There's more. There's coming one who, whom by his stripes you will be healed. He will die in your place and take your sins upon himself. You just wait. There is more. You're in slavery now, but there is a liberator coming. One day in the little town of Bethlehem, one night in the little town of Bethlehem, there was a baby born in a cattle trough. No doubt Mary was wondering what in the world she'd gotten herself into, seeing angels and all this kind of thing and being told that I'm going to give birth to the Messiah and here I am. And God sent some shepherds to Mary and Joseph essentially to tell them, behold, <laughs> just wait, there's more. Jesus launched his ministry at age 30, and for three years, his message was, I'm going to die, I'm going to die, I'm going to die. What was he saying? But wait, there's more. And on the cross, he died. But God the Father said, give it three days. Give it three days. Just wait. There's more. Jesus was raised from the dead on that third day. And do you remember? 
He said, this isn't the last time you're going to see me. You're actually going to see me again. You just wait. There's more. And there's coming a day when Jesus will come again on the clouds and he will gather his people from the north and the south, the east and the west. There will be the trumpet call of God, the voice of the archangel. Jesus will appear. Those who have died in Christ will be raised. Those who are alive in Christ will be gathered up with them to meet the Lord in the clouds, in the air. And we will see him face to face. And we will think that we've seen all that we can see and we've become all we can become. Because to, to see him, we will be made like him. <laughs> well, I've got news for you. The Word of God says that even after we have seen him and beheld him in his glory, God's message to us is you haven't seen anything yet. Just wait. There's still more. <laughs> More. And we will spend the rest of eternity coming to know the great heart of this great God, who is the God and Father of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is the God whose heart is generous beyond our understanding. He is the God of more. Don't try to understand him by what's going on to you. Don't try to understand him by what's going on inside of you. Don't try to understand him by what's going on in the lives of the people around you. Hear what he has to say. Even when you can't see my hand, trust my heart. I have for you more. And ultimately, the more that he has for us is gathered up in himself and in the gift of his son, Jesus which is why we Christians like to say, if you have all of Jesus, you have all you really need. Jesus is the ultimate gift from God's great heart. So what is the heart of God like? heart of God is considerate. The heart of God is friendly. The heart of God is generous, which is to say that the heart of God is an unexpected, unadmanaged, unimagined kindness. So let's go back to the original question. When you think of God thinking of you, how do you see him? Is he snarling? Is he disdainful? Dismissive? 
how do you see it? If you see him as anything, if you see his heart as anything but kind, you're not seeing him. Pause. Men, when you hear me say the word kind, don't you think for a minute that I'm saying weak because he is strong in his kindness. He is so strong in his kindness that he will be generous with his discipline if you and I get out of the, ro- get out of the way. I mean, he's generous. Anybody had any generous discipline? See, we're always celebrating God of the immeasurably more. Well, you can get immeasurably more discipline if you're not careful. At the heart of God is an unexpected kindness that aims for and always works for our best, your best. Behold, this is your God. He is ultimately and finally a God of great, matchless, loving kindness. Father God, I am moved again and refreshed in this extraordinary reminder of your kindness. I realize, I recognize, Father, that in so many ways I've been a Naomi. It is so easy for us to become bitter because we have decided somehow that your love has failed us, that you've had heart failure when it comes to us. And the story powerfully reminds us, Lord God, that you have not once ever failed any of your children. You're a God of deep loyalty. You simply never give up. Yours and yours only is a love that wins, able to conquer even our greatest sins through the death of your Son on the cross. And so, Father, in the quiet of this moment, we pause to thank you and to try to take in your great heart for us. We pray and ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand to your feet all across the room? I'll ask our prayer team to come. Take their places. Why why do we have a prayer team? Because people need prayer. There are some folks here today you're a follower of Jesus. Somewhere along the way, you've, uh, your view of God has gotten off kilter. Your view of his heart shifted, and uh, you haven't seen him as he really is. Maybe you're noticing in your life some bitterness, some harshness, 
some anger toward him. Maybe you're witnessing in your life some Naomi. Perhaps seeing in this powerful way again the heart of God, you find yourself drawn to him. And maybe what you need to say today is, Lord, I, I honestly cannot see your hands, but Father God seeing the cross, I'm choosing again to trust your heart. I don't get it. I can't figure out what's happened or why it's happened. I, but because you are who you are and you love the way you love, I'm going to stop pursuing answers and I'm going to start pursuing you. here to pray with you. Men, we've got men. I invite you to come. If today you realize, you recognize that the God you thought you had rejected was not this God, that you've lived your life saying no to a God who's angry and hostile and harsh and always working to defeat you and damn you, Today you realize that isn't the God of the Bible. You realize He is love, He is holiness. There are consequences for our sin. There is separation from Him that comes at the end of things, but this God is a God of such great kindness that He has opened up His heart to you and shown to you Jesus. Why? Because He wants you rest of your life here and for all eternity to cling to him, to lean on him, and to discover that he's good for his promise of having more, more life than you can imagine. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day to give him your life and your heart, to see his heart give you, gives you the chance to give him yours and have your life changed forever before this life comes to a close and the opportunity is no more. I invite you to come. Jesus loves us. God is for us and the cross is proof of all of this. I'm not calling you, believers, to be like Ruth. I'm not calling you to be like Naomi. I'm not calling you to be like Boaz. I'm calling you to be like Jesus and to see his Father's heart like he does. You need to come. We're ready to pray with you. Thanks for joining me today. If you enjoy these podcasts, take a moment to rate and review CG Life with Steve Kortz. My prayer is that God will continue to inspire and challenge you in Christ as week by week we apply the gospel faith to real life.